You are listening to the Prepared Warrior Podcast, where law enforcement and military trainers discuss cutting-edge training, tactics, and technology. Here is your host, John Wilson. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 2 of the Prepared Warrior. I'm John Wilson. Our guest for this episode is Clive Milligan. I like to start every episode with a quote. This one is from Franklin D. Roosevelt, who said, When you come to the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. Our guest Clive Milligan is a law enforcement trainer with 27 years experience in policing, advancing the reality-based training experience for police by introducing a realistic, collapsible training baton and training head. Always coming out with new, exciting products. Clive Milligan, thank you for coming on. Well, thanks for having me here, John. As I mentioned, you have created several training tools. How did the idea for the Blue Baton come about? Uh, I guess over the years, historically, we're teaching uh, baton tactics and recertification to law enforcement. Um, and what we had at the time was was all we really had was a straight foam stick. There's a couple of really good ones out in the market, but we realized that it wasn't a uh, actual replica of what an officer would be using if uh, she or he had a collapsible baton with them. Uh, when I first started policing, this will date me a little bit, but uh, we used to have the 26-inch polycarbonate baton. We had wood batons and hickory, and there were straight sticks uh, that we had to carry around with us. Uh, when we changed over to cloth batons, we were still using the straight foam sticks for training and found it wasn't that uh, realistic. So I came up with an idea to have a baton that would be similar in working uh, function as a street baton but obviously with a, with a lot less weight to it. So it was made out of a polycarbonate, a spun nylon, and some other materials that made it a lot lighter. And it would collapse and open in similar fashion that an officer would have on their duty belt. So in a scenario, when the officer goes for their baton, it would be in the same place where it would be on the street, and it would act in the same function, requires some uh, opening mechanism and a style to open it either upwards, downwards, or beside you, a little bit of centripetal force. Uh, and then you could also hit people with the baton, the training baton, if they had some proper uh, padding on. So it it made for a smoother transition from training to reality, and it built the motor programs that officers would require when they had to get to it in a real fight on, a real, on the real street. Yeah, and at first glance, it, it seems like a relatively basic training baton but when you look closer you see you used magnets to allow it to expand like a normal baton was this your first solution or how many times did it take to get the the formula right um yeah it was a lot of trial and error and figure out how to keep it in the open position how to keep it in the closed position so it wouldn't open by itself when it was inverted in the officer's uh, scabbard or holster uh, so most of the batons out there in the street will work by a friction lock uh, because it was a lighter material, there wasn't as much friction, and I worked on a couple of little retention clips, uh, but it ended up uh, not working as well as the magnets, uh, and then it became a matter of trying to find the, the right size magnet and the right uh, magnetic strength, and uh, again, a lot of trial and error, as there is with everything, but in the end, it worked out to uh, be pretty realistic and that you have to actually snap it open to get the desired extension yeah yeah what would you say is the biggest advantage of using the blue baton over over its predecessors like the you know the foam batons uh, the, i think it's just 
because it does uh, replicate exactly what an officer has to do. They have to find it in their duty belt under the stress of you know decision-making time to take a baton out, to use it as a, um, a tool. And therefore, it's exactly where it'll be. Where uh, So their blueprint for that is exactly where it'll be in their duty belt. And it operates the same way. And then you can hit with it, obviously. Um, the, the foam batons are great when we use straight stick batons, as in our riot squad, um, or when we used to historically carry the straight batons. But the blue baton is uh, the most realistic baton out there in the market. And uh, so far, so good. People are giving me some good feedback on it. Yeah, I could definitely see why it's uh, you know it's an advantage to using it in especially reality based training scenarios where you want everything to to look or feel as real as it could. Um, is there any other advantage to using it like in other kinds of drills? Um, yeah, you can use it uh, striking the bag. Um, you know, it is almost reserved for more reality based training. It gives the officers a chance to have an option if they have blue blue guns or blue spray or NLTA training uh, converted pistols. Uh, now they've got the full kit. They can they can go for whatever tool they need to use. Uh, some of the straight batons, as I've mentioned before, you'd have to stuff them in your pocket or your cargo pants pocket or the small of your back. Or an, instruct, an instructor would have to take a timeout when you drew your collapsible baton or expandable baton. Uh, they'd have to take a timeout and swap out a foamy in hand. So it, it kind of threw the scenario timing off, and it didn't flow naturally. So now the officer can flow uh, you know, in the reality-based uh, training, they don't have to take any breaks and, unless they need to from the instructor perspective. It'll be a more natural selection process for them. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, that's one of the biggest advantages of reality-based training. Nice. Now, uh, uh, going on to one of the, your other products, um, the eye gouge head as a unique training device. I'm not a cop myself, but uh, I'm sure uh, you'd have to be in a real bad situation to be justifying uh, using an eye gouge uh, to defend yourself, uh, how does that uh, fit into police training? Well, it's specifically reserved for the deadly force arena in the empty hand realm, or maybe a combination of both, but it certainly is a high-level uh, use of force, and it's uh, clearly stated in the training materials so, uh, when you go to the website uh, that it's reserved for that moment when uh, you really need to inflict a significant injury on the attacker or the subject. Uh, and it's kind of a misnomer. It's a common term, however, called eye gouging. But talking to some of the doctors uh, as I was developing the product, it was, it's very difficult to actually gouge an eye out. I've only had a handful of uh, people come up to me at trade shows and exhibitions and, and trainers say they've actually gouged an eye or seen an eye gouged. And uh, it requires some structural damage, usually to that occipital bone. I made the top of the, the cheekbone, maxilla, and... Uh, it the eyes kind of sucked in with vacuum and it's tapered back into the the skull it's connected with six ocular muscles there's ligaments there's a vein an artery and a nerves lots of fatty tissue in there so it's really hard to pull an eye out it takes a lot of work they said so the name eye gouge is common but it's really causing an injury like a corneal abrasion or a rake across the, the lens of the eye to create an injury that will hopefully take the attacker's mind away from what he or she is doing, i.e. assaulting or gun grabs or deadly force uh, uh, scenarios, and uh, create a window of opportunity for the officer to get to his or her gun if they need to or to continue to injure. We'll call it a spinal reflex injury. It's a term 
uh, talked about in some of the higher level self-defense programs, some of the target focused training uh, folks will discuss this spinal reflex injury where the impact is so strong in such a delicate area of the body that the brain really has to go into a reflexive mode as opposed to sending messages for, for example, a gun grab. Mm-hmm. So you overwhelm the sensory input. And the eyes, of course, are extremely sensitive. Uh, there's over a million nerve endings, I'm told, are in around the eyes. So uh, if you get a speck of dirt or maybe a, an eyelash for a you know, really low-level uh, obstruction in the eye and, and foreign object in the eye, it creates a, a reflex in human beings to close both eyes, to turn their head away from possible more dust blowing in their eyes or whatever the incident was. Now, again, at, at an extreme-level situation, if an officer or a citizen starts to fire fingers or thumbs into the eyes, it hopefully causes that same spinal reflex overload and it gives them a chance to escape or continue to injure if that's what's required at the time. So it's, uh, it's called eye gouge it's, uh, because that's what's commonly termed. Mm-hmm. It, it, would you say there's more um, to that technique, like, to, to gouging an eye, than, than people would think, like to, to learn how to do it? Oh, it's pretty simple. Um, to, historically, we used to teach, and some training still goes on today, where uh, we'll practice eye gouge heads, and they'll have the student place his or her thumb, like a hitchhiker's thumb, the pad of the thumb, against the forehead just above the eyebrow of the other participant in training. And the problem with that is it's the wrong tool, of the flat aspect of the thumb, the pad, mm-hmm. into the wrong target, which is the forehead. What you really want to be doing is sharpening your tools i.e. getting the right kind of tool, the points of the finger, the nails, into the actual eye of the human being. So under stress, we we hope that the student wouldn't repeat the wrong landmarking. Uh, and now with the eye gouge head, uh, they can actually start to put fingers in around the eyes, into the eyes. They can feel the um, viscosity of the training eye, and they can start to landmark. A landmarking for an eye rake or eye gouge or eye injury it's going to be simple. You can find the bridge of the nose with either hand. You can find the forehead, obviously, in any orientation you may be, whether you're rolling around the ground or in a car, trying to extricate yourself from a confined area. You just locate the shoulders. There's, there goes the neck, therefore the forehead, and there's the eyes. And you start inputting energy with the uh, tools, fingers and thumbs, and hopefully causing a corneal abrasion, which, again, elicits a spinal reflex injury, and it's too much for the brain to handle, and the person goes from offense to defense, and that's the chance. So uh, you don't have to have a lot of skill, but what the eye gouge head allows you to do is get comfortable with a very uncomfortable topic because a lot of people kind of get icked out uh, when they think about putting fingers into people's eyes because it's quite foreign to them. So this gives the student a chance to get comfortable with an uncomfortable subject and practice landmarking. How real does it feel, the the uh, practice eye gouge head? Um, well, it's rigid like a skull is. It doesn't have a fascia or floating skin surface to it. Um, I didn't design the head to be a punching head. And to make it clear, it's on the, on the website as well, it says, this is not a striking head. Mm-hmm. There's many good striking targets, whether they're hand targets from uh, sparring or MMA, there's uh, some orb targets out there that are softer that you can strike. Uh, there's training uh, opponent bags that you can strike that have got faces on them. But in a deadly force encounter, I wanted to ensure that the officer or the citizen, who's a civilian who's using this, 
doesn't start hammering away on the human skull with an unprotected hand. And by that, I mean no uh, boxing glove, no MMA glove, no hand wraps, no wrist wraps, uh, because when you start hammering the human skull, there's a potential that you get injured and you can't use your hand again for car keys, for cell phones to call the police, uh, for pistols if you're fighting away your next best weapon system. Uh, so I wanted to keep the hands, the integrity of the hands alive and well and working. So the durometer of the head is very firm. And uh, when you feel it, it's like, yeah, I'm going to not want to punch that, uh, which hopefully translates to out on the road. You don't need to punch someone in the head uh, in a deadly force encounter. You can just start landmarking the bridge of the nose, forehead, and go after the eyes, and that'll give you a chance a lot better than breaking your hand. The mass, the density and, and mass of the skull plates is the real tail of the tape here. The hand is a lot smaller bones, less density, less mass. And uh, the winner of those two collisions is going to be the skull. If you can get the knockout shot with a nice left hook or an uppercut or maybe a jab perhaps into the R angle of the jaw, that's a good go-to target. But we don't want to risk the, uh, missing and uh, have a glancing blow off a skull plate, damage your own hand, and not have an effective uh, technique or strike causing these the subject and deadly force encounter to be injured. So we want to stay away from punching the head mm -hmm. and go after uh, easier targets. Everyone's eyes are the same. You go to the gym tonight or today and you'll see uh, big, strong people, but no one's exercising their eyelids and nobody's exercising their ears, which is also a viable target on the eye gouge head. Some trainers uh, use uh, fake blood behind the eye. So it squirts out. Um, what would be an advantage of doing this? Um, yeah, I haven't seen that, but uh, if some people want to go ahead and put something in there like that, it would probably give a visual, uh, obviously maybe a kinesthetic if it's uh, got some viscosity to it, but it'll certainly give the visual learning uh, and it'll maybe buy into a little more of uh, the realism of it. Uh, in an attack and you're going after the eyes, if you want to do that, then maybe the student will benefit from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that could be good. Um I think it would make it a little more realistic too. But again, I, there's many blood vessels in and around the eye. There's a main artery and a, and a vein that circulate uh, blood into the eye that go into the foreman to meet the brain. But uh, I've never seen a squirting eye or a, a traumatic eye injury. It's usually reddening and, and the blood's uh, coming out from the vessels. But yeah, I mean, hey, fill your boots or fill your eye gouge head. Right. <laughs> and, uh, uh, going on to another uh, newer product, you have uh, cuff training tape. That's to protect uh, wrists during handcuff training. And this seems like, uh, you know, obviously a good idea. What what can you tell us about it? Uh, over the years, uh, handcuff training, we use either role players or actors or other officers. But the problem was uh, repeated handcuffing can get uncomfortable. And they're not designed to be comfortable. We know that. But repeated cuffing over a period of half an hour or half a day or maybe some scenarios with some excitement and some adrenaline into it uh, sometimes lends itself to uh, surface abrasions or cuts or nicks or pinches when the cuffs get bound up on a, someone with a bigger wrist. Uh, and it's uncomfortable. We also know that although we ask uh, officers to clean their handcuffs prior to coming to training, uh, maybe they haven't had time or they forgot or it's just too busy. So some of the... Uh, uh, the surface contentments on the metal, depending on when they last contacted someone, may be transferred in training. So we try to make it as safe as possible. So I created a, a flexible tape or used a flexible tape on the market. It's like kinesthetic or K-tape or sorry, kinesiology tape right. that uh, 
when it's placed around the wrist of the officer in training or the role player, it acts as a barrier protection. But it's also a little more advanced than just using sports tape or hockey tape. The problem with the sports and hockey tape is, uh, well, one, it's uncomfortable, pulls the hair off if that's a concern, uh, pulls the hair off the wrist, but also doesn't have the same flexibility as this uh, cuff training tape does. Cuff training tape is designed to flex in all different directions, um, so it's multi-flex uh, tape, and it has a um, a benefit of pulling the skin away uh, and allowing the lymph, their circulation system to continue. It's commonly used in sports. You notice it a lot in the Olympic athletes. Uh, some professional sports uh, players will use it as well uh, for joints and circulation. So it has a, a feature to it that helps the body heal a little bit better as well. But the main function was that it's going to protect your role players and, uh, and they can endure the handcuffing training a little longer. It also has six tactical tips on there, depending on your handcuffing method. It'll apply to most common types of handcuffing. So the, the list of six tactical tips is written on the cuff tape. So as the officer approaches the SOC or the subject they're about to handcuff, uh, they can actually read what it is they're supposed to do. It's kind of like a quarterback cheat sheet. And uh, that, again, with the kinesthetic learning, the visual learning, they'll be able to read through this list and, and do the best uh, practice. So it's, all, it's just for them to refer to. Right, right. And uh, the most uh, most recent tool, I guess you're, it's probably your latest one, is the uh, the blue training knife. How does how does this uh, training tool work? Uh, well, blue training knife, yeah, it's brand new on the market. Uh, just showed it at the Martial Arts Super Show in Las Vegas. Had some really good uh, feedback on it. It's a a training knife that uh, has multi purposes to it. And on the market, uh, there's some excellent training knives. I mean, shock knife's a, a no-brainer. That's, that's a beauty. That gets emotional buy-in immediately. Uh, some of the training knives that are existing out there are rigid. I wanted to make a knife that was realistic-looking, so it has a, a metallic-colored blade as opposed to unicolor or black, even though there are some knives, obviously, that are black. But the majority of edge weapons or knives will be sort of silvery metallic color. So it's got the, the visual to it. Um, and there, it also has jimping on it, like a, a thumb grooves. It's got a serrated base to the blade, and it's got a front guard or keon, as it's uh, described, and that it makes it a little more realistic. So the students using it will see, they'll know it's a train knife, but it, it certainly looks like a knife as opposed to, a, I said, a piece of wood or something else that doesn't have that uh, visual buy-in to it. It only weighs one ounce, so it's, as far as I know, it's the lightest training knife on the market. And I wanted to make it lightweight so that if you did get hit by it, say in the in the torso or even on the arm somewhere, that it wouldn't have a lot of mass to it. So I was using the old uh, formula for force and looks something like mass times the of velocity squared and uh, the acceleration. It's a scientific one, and obviously I'm not a scientist, but I know the lighter it is, the less potential injury it'll have when it makes contact. Uh, it also twists and flex. So when the blade twists and flex on contact, the energy is dissipated over a broader surface area as opposed to a rigid point. So it's safer if you get tagged into the uh, floating ribs or sometimes you get a bladder shot if the knife's come up from underneath or into the neck. You can actually put a blue training blade into the neck uh, without having it cause any injuries because it's uh, more flexible than the target is striking. Um, you still need to wear iPro, obviously, but I want it to be lightweight and realistic looking. And thirdly, what it does is it... Uh, allows you to put a, 
a blade tape on the base of the blade, or you could, if you're doing dagger training, you could put the tape around the entire circumference of the blade, apply an ink to it, and the ink is unique in that it is disappearing ink. So it'll, you, when you tag or when you touch your training partner with the blue blade that's had the blue training ink applied to the tape, then you'll see immediately uh, the mark that is made. Therefore, that would be a cut or a contact with the uh, knife. The unique thing about this, and traditionally we would have to take a break and start to clean off uh, detergent-based uh, marking compounds. And if you're using an LTA or some marking rounds, you know you have to take a little bit of time to, to brush it off or wipe it off. The unique thing about the blue training knife is the ink disappears immediately on touch. Uh, so you have less training time dedicated to cleaning time, and your iterations are a lot faster. On a white martial arts gi, for example, it'll show up as a blue streak. And the hotter you get in training, usually the temperature rises with a little bit of stress and some exercise and, and, and uh, working the system. It starts to evaporate even faster. Um, and if you have a dark-colored gi or gray tactical pants, you'll see the mark will end up as a, a wet streak. And that'll, that indicates you've been touched by the blade as well. And then you just wipe it clean and you're good to go. So there's zero, very little downtime in uh, cleaning and more time in training. So, Clive, you've been a police use of force trainer for a long time. What do you think is the number one mistake made by trainers? Um, well, I've made the mistake myself, and uh, it's probably one of the best ways to learn. Uh, and that is I'll often, or I'll observe police officers or recruits learning a new skill. And my previous uh, training experience would be I would step in and try and correct them right away because I could see whether it was a, a say a takedown or some handcuffing <clears throat> and I wanted to be there to almost like a helicopter dad and go oh no 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 use your left hand okay if you hold the right hand here and they would get the procedure they would complete the task but it's only because I was standing over them uh, telling them which step, step to go to next because I wanted them to succeed uh, after learning about learning, uh, I would hold back and let them make mistakes in a training environment, say on the first iteration, if they're coming back to revisit handcuffing. Typically, I'd say, okay, let's do a, a prone hang. Subject is prone, handcuff them now, go ahead. And I would then observe them working their way through the process, whether it be the top knee down or a sprinter's toe, or all these little little teaching tools we use along the way and, and remind ourselves these uh, teaching analogies. And Okay, now it's a good body position, hand close to the head, takes the cuffs out, and it can be for any task, but say using handcuff, for example. And now I'll actually they'll stall for a minute, and uh, they're, they're starting to figure out how to best solve this as opposed to having helicopter cop dad in there saying, okay, do this, do that, the other thing. So once they get to a point where they don't know the answer and they've trial and errored it, they'll really look up for some help. And that's when now I and the other instructors, we move in and go, okay, what you got going on here? Uh, let them explain what they've done so far and let them be the fixers of the problem. And then we can ask simple questions like, well, what, what, what are you going to do next? What's next? And then they'll think about it. And their brains will start to tie together all the schemas or the bundles of knowledge they've learned last week or maybe even last year or could be an hour ago. And they'll start to tie it all together. And then when we ask for the next iteration, they've already done their correction themselves. 
So they've they've felt it, they've experienced it, and they've made a mistake. They know how to fix that mistake as opposed to us not even seeing it or asking them about it. And they leave the training venue with uh, their best effort of the day. And they can still also learn if the scenarios are pretty intense. Uh, we understand now people will be learning when they're driving home. Hopefully they're not too distracted. They'll also be learning when they're at rest. And they'll be learning when they're fast asleep, when their brain's processing the events that took place that day. So we know that there's a lot more to learning than just show and tell. Uh, people have to get into it, the olfactory, the smells, the sights, the sounds, the touch. Their whole emotional buy-in, particularly in reality-based training, uh, is all about creating a blueprint for success under reality-based situations of stress. So the more sound you can get in there, the more realistic screams, the more uh, emotional sort of the psychological aspect of it all, the jitters, the increased heart rate, combat breathing, and there's so much to learn uh, as an, an instructor that we want them to be the best they can be. And uh, when they leave the training venue, we hope they've had an emotional attachment to the training. And uh, then, you know, our job is done for the day, and then we figure out how we can do it a little bit better as well. So that's... Uh, you know, one, one thing I had learned was I was making the mistake of trying to show them the right way right off the bat as opposed to letting them fluster around for a little bit and come up with their own solutions. Right, yeah. Everyone has a different way of figuring things out. And, and uh, yeah, it makes sense that, that sometimes you just have to let people uh, try to figure it out before before giving them an answer, right? Mm, absolutely. And what do you think uh, – uh, I know there's so many different things, but – a broad question, what do you think would be the most important component of officer safety training? Yeah, great question. Um, it was like <laughs> a couple of hours long uh, and some more research, but let's say it starts at the top. And uh, if you've got a chief or, or someone in charge of your organization who understands the the value of training their officers, uh, and participates in training with the officers and certifies with the line staff, then the morale and the understanding, the importance of training will be increased for everybody. And then it reflects in the general public when the public sees the chief is uh, well turned out and she or he has an ability to carry themselves with confidence and competence and that they'll let, you know, if need be, they can, they can wrestle some of the ground if that's what's required. And, uh, and so there's, a big focus on officer safety training, but the executive training is really, really important. They'll also then come to understand that it's not as easy as it may sound in a classroom when you actually get involved in trying to control the human body or the human being that may not want to be controlled. We look at a whole host of other issues there. And so officer fitness is important, uh, but also training is, is extremely important. And you look to other professions out there, and we know law enforcement uh, most of the time is talking to people, which is great. De-escalation is fantastic. Uh, very rarely does an officer have to get into a high-level use of force incident. But when uh, he or she does, we want them to be able to protect themselves and the public and also the subject they're dealing with. So it requires some repetition and training, some reasonable training, something that would be uh, recognized as to be reasonable by a court or the, the court of the land or a, a jury to show that it's not officers just to go out there and hammer someone. They're going to have to go and try lower levels of force if possible and then understand how the body works. And it's all about balance. It's all about intentionally causing people to fall down and lose their balance and then 
keeping close, keeping control, uh, getting the handcuffs on quickly, de-escalation. So what quite often happens is uh, um, in a lot of organizations, uh, training may be uh, the hatchet target on some budgets, uh, but it has changed. The perception of training is no longer a bunch of knuckle draggers and kung fu fighting. It's more uh, it's a lot more professional, a lot more focused on how to use force most effectively that'll be safer for the subject who's having force used against him or her, the officer, and also the organization, and that's acceptable by the public. So the public expects police officers to be able to handle the situations that they weren't able to at the time, uh, and now the uh, as long as training supported, and that is organizationally supported or provincially supported or state-supported or municipally supported, then it does cost a little more money, but you can pay now or pay later. Uh, and uh, we now know that the the focus on police use of force is, is pretty intense, and therefore you would think it would be a natural for the executives of the organization to want to put the officer's best foot forward to provide her or him the best training. So it has changed over the years, which is great. Uh, so that's, that's a super important component of officer safety training. Uh, and that's, uh, I think, it starts at the top. Well, I think that's um, a great point to end on. I really appreciate you uh, you taking the time to tell us about all the all the different things you've been working on and, and just about training in general. So uh, I really appreciate uh, your time. Thanks so much, uh, Clive Milligan, for coming on. My pleasure, John. Thanks to you. This has been the Prepared Warrior Podcast. For more info on our guests or other episodes, check out thepreparedwarrior.com. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for the Prepared Warrior Podcast, email j-o-n at thepreparedwarrior.com.